Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Batak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Joe Davis, Global Chief Economist at Vanguard. Joe also heads up Vanguard's Investment Strategy Group, a team that conducts research on portfolio construction, develops the firm's economic and market outlook, and helps oversee Vanguard's asset allocation strategies for both institutional and individual investors. He's also a member of the Senior Portfolio Management Team for Vanguard Fixed Income Group. He earned a PhD in economics at Duke University. Joe, welcome to The Long View. Oh, thanks for having me, Christine. Well, it's great to have you here. I want to talk about a paper that your team recently came out with on asset bubbles. And one of the points you make is that big price increases aren't necessarily a signal that an asset is in a bubble. Assets that have gone up a lot are more likely to continue to go up than go down. So if price increases aren't a good guide to what is overpriced, what do you think is? That's a great question, Christine. I think really relevant for the market today. It's it's clearly fundamentals, and I don't think that would be a surprise to your listeners. Um, You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and and so you know, price increases in and of itself, although they can be surprising, it's important to anchor relative to what are fundamental values for any asset. Um, It could be land values for real estate. Uh, It could be certainly in the U.S. equity market things such as the level of interest rates, and more importantly, you know, earnings relative to that price. And so those are the sort of metrics that we look at to try to assess what a fair value is for, for any asset or investment opportunity. And I think that's important to keep in mind, certainly in this environment. You mentioned the U.S. housing market in the paper, noting that despite sizable home price increases in certain markets, that appears to be related to supply-demand imbalances in the wake of the pandemic rather than speculative excess. Can you walk us through your thinking? Yeah, I think there's three factors, which I think the housing market are good examples of why, despite very heady home price increases, particularly in certain parts of the country, uh, I'm hard-pressed to at least find significant evidence of a bubble. And again, a bubble is by definition a significant, in one sense, not defensible deviation from an asset's fair price over the long run. And so when we look at the demand supply imbalance in the housing market, it's actually pretty acute. Housing inventories in some of the hottest markets are actually on the lowest on record. And if anything, it's been a remarkable surprise to me during COVID-19. Demand has increased significantly in certain housing markets. At the same time, supply has, has just not kept up. And so much like any sort of commodity or other or, or other good, it's not surprising to see the, the prices rising significantly. I, I think a second factor is the fact that the cost of financing is incredibly low, so you can justify some of the price increases. Now, that does not suggest that home price increases will continue indefinitely, because at some point, affordability will become an issue. But uh, again, supply is low, one. Second, cost of financing is extremely supportive. And third, there's not incredible amounts of leverage in the system, which you also tend to see with unsustainable price increases. So all three of those would point to me as evidence that I'm hard-pressed to see evidence of a bubble in the housing market. 
Let's talk about cryptocurrency, which you did discuss in the paper. You think that that area is more worrisome from the standpoint of frothiness. Can you talk about that and how we would know if cryptocurrency is overvalued? Thanks, Christine. It, 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 it's actually one of the more challenging questions to answer, in part because it gets back to that fundamental value. It, it really depends upon one's assumptions of what the future state of use and adoption of cryptocurrencies may be, Christine, because that, that'll ultimately determine what the fair value for cryptocurrencies value. I mean, it's certainly uh, some argue it has a great deal of utility and that there's a likelihood in the future that cryptocurrencies become effectively the default, you know, a measure of exchange, uh, much like we use paper currency today. I think that could happen. I think there's also risk to that view. And, and that's why we try to articulate some which doesn't seem to be discounted at all in certain cryptocurrencies value. And some of those risks include uh, the fact that it is extremely volatile. And so by definition, at least right now, it's tough to defend it as a really medium of exchange. More importantly is the very nature of the technology itself. And so the history of technology shows, at least to me, that you could have improvements in even cryptocurrencies themselves, which will actually you know, obviate the utility of the current generation of cryptocurrency. So in one sense, some argue that, well, cryptocurrency is valuable because it's limited in supply. And so the risk of, quote unquote, printing money is less. Well, that's true, but you could have infinite number of cryptocurrencies themselves. And so I think that's really the tension. And you have smart people on either side of that argument. Um, I'm more skeptical because I think at the end of the day, central banks will adopt similar technology, which will you know, really uh, depress the value of these alternative currencies, quote unquote, if you will. But again, history is not written on this matter. You also single out low quality U.S. growth stocks as appearing frothy today. How do you define low quality in this case? Well, I think that's just the combination of, of really, you know, very little, if, if any, earnings, um, you know, which tends to happen in, you know, younger companies or in, in certain fields such as technology, Jeff. Um, but, uh, you know, at least over the long historical record, companies that tend to be ranked uh, lower on the value spectrum, i.e. more growth companies, so high price to earnings if they have earnings at all. And then secondly, the lower quality of the earnings. So effectively, you know, the E is even lower in that equation or, or negative. Historically, those companies as a portfolio that have those characteristics have underperformed the broad market, which is why you, know, you hear some talk about factor risk premiums, such as value type stocks. But that certainly has reversed and has not been the case over the past decade. And in fact, growth companies outperformance has been eye-opening and nearly unprecedented over the past 10 years. And then the question is, that recent trend, A, does it reverse or is it this time different? Uh, we believe it will ultimately reverse given the things that we could get into. One question that has come up a lot recently is whether this period is analogous to the late 90s period, the dot-com bubble period. What do you think are the major similarities and what do you see as the key differences? Really good question, Christine. I think there's certainly two similarities. One is, and, and actually, if you even go beyond just the late 1990s, any time in human history, financial market history, where there's been a bubble, there's at least two characteristics, generally three, 
two of which I think are in place today, and it's questionable in the third. One is there's a compelling narrative that this time is different. And so, you know, typically there's a new type of asset or type of company, you know, whose value has really risen dramatically. I mean, it's everything from the South Sea to different stocks in the late 1990s, obviously tied to the internet. Today, it's new forms of technology, nevertheless, that has the same sort of characteristics that these sort of companies or industries are going to, quote unquote, change the world. And some of that may clearly be true. I mean, some companies emerged out of the 1990s that ultimately changed uh, retail. You know, Amazon is a good example. And then the second one um, really is a significant and in our judgment, too significant of a discounting of future growth. So that's where I think there's, in our mind, a deviation between the growth prospects for these industries and companies and what will realistically be delivered, even if their growth is still substantial in the future. So, for an example, some companies, their valuation or their price today effectively assumes that they own, if not the entire part of their market in their business, but if not all of it, at least a high percentage of that. So effectively what happens in bubbles is that I I think one of the underpinnings for its ultimate deceleration in price is that they underestimate either regulatory change or I think more likely going forward, new entrants, which actually compete on market share. And it's the very capital and the price appreciation and technology and innovation that actually increases other future market competitors. And so I think that at times investors have tended to underestimate that point and instead have really become fascinated with the growth prospects. And I think that is the environment we're in now for some companies, not all, and it's not very broad based, but it's certainly in parts of the U.S. and global equity market. Do you think the recent rally in value stocks compared to growth has addressed this issue somewhat or is there still a ways to go? on the growth versus value imbalance? Well, Jeff, if you give us you know, several years to look out, because I think that's important because no one, and certainly not us, will get the timing right, there is you know, elevated odds that ultimately the underperformance of value, not all of that, but a portion of that will be unraveled. And so value stocks are likely to outperform growth stocks in the future. Now, part of that reason is the macro fundamentals if you believe the market, if you believe the consensus scenario, over the next several years, there should be an improvement in growth and modest rise in real interest rates. That's important because the macro fundamentals have explained uh, roughly two-thirds of the value stock universe's underperformance over the past decade. I mean, it just didn't happen by accident. Some of this was well uh, justified. Something else happened roughly six months ago, and so in addition to macro fundamentals potentially being a tailwind, i.e. a global recovery for value stocks, the second one is much more of just the increased overvaluation of growth, even relative to those fundamentals. And what we talk about in our paper is that even when we give growth companies the benefit of the doubt of what we call technological change, so R&D expenditures, changes in platforms, greater investment and demand for those type of services, even when we credit that as an asset rather than an expense, which is typically done in accounting, they are still overvalued in our framework. And that only happened very recently. So this wasn't the fact that, at least to us, growth stocks have been overvalued for several years. This is actually a much more recent phenomenon. And when that has happened, again, at least historically, and with the benefit of hindsight, 
there's generally been a reversion to the mean and a modest underperformance of whatever asset that's significantly above those fair value metrics. So I think it's that second point, in addition to the first, that give us a higher than average likelihood that over the next several years, the value premium will be realized for investors, which actually would be good news because, as you know, and Morningstar has documented, value stocks have been a significant you know, underperformer in a globally balanced portfolio for at least a decade. We want to go back to discuss your market outlook later on. But before we do that, we wanted to do some stage setting by talking about your team's economic outlook, starting with COVID. In your team's global outlook for 2021, you noted that that outlook was hinging almost entirely on health outcomes. And now that we're three months into this year, what do you see when you assess the COVID response and the vaccine uptake globally? Thanks, Christine. And, you know, I'm really proud of our framework. It was the first time we really had a focus on on health, as you note. And much like we assumed at the beginning of the year, the economic picture would really be dependent upon how quickly we would close on what we call the immunity gap, the percentage of the population that has been vaccinated or has acquired natural immunity. And then with that, we would see an increase in consumer confidence with respect to you know, social-based activities, restaurants, travel, and so forth. And then with that, obviously, higher economic growth. Our assumptions, uh, they've generally been tracking uh, very recently we're sitting here today as we approach into April, the vaccination rates in some markets are in line with our projections. In the U.S., they're starting to track even above our initial estimates after, quite frankly, getting slowly out of the gate. So I think right now we're still anticipating strong economic growth. We were above consensus at the beginning of the year. We still remain above consensus. And the growth picture has increased, I think, across the board in the financial markets because of the fiscal stimulus. So it's likely that in the next 12 months, we will see the highest growth rates in the United States that we've seen since perhaps the early 1980s. We will see China-like growth for a time in the United States. What grade would you give the U.S. policymakers for their response to the COVID crisis thus far? And and maybe I would add to that by asking, given the sunny growth outlook that you just described, what do you think is a correct policy stance for them to take in view of the fact that sometimes higher inflation accompanies that type of growth? Sure, Jeff. I mean, I, I think, you know, early on in the crisis, you know, we and, and others in the uh, asset management industry uh, both applauded some of the, the very timely and aggressive policy responses, both from the Federal Reserve as well as from Congress and, and for other central banks and policymakers around the world. And so it was it was a very significant response and it was fast and it's something that, you know, we would give counsel to policymakers when they were interested in our view and continue to do that. I think we will certainly not see you know, the low growth environment that we saw coming out of the global financial crisis, in part because of the significant policy response. I mean, in totality, we are seeing, you know, at least in the United States, nearly unprecedented policy response. So you have to go back to World War II to look at the policy stance as aggressive and as accommodative collectively, monetary and fiscal, as we see today. Um, it's not surprised to hear uh, a growing concern with modest inflation returning, given the fact the growth numbers that you and I just mentioned. Um, and, you know, there's some emerging upside risk to inflation. It's not for tomorrow, but it's, it's a little bit longer term and something that we will have research coming out 
And so I think the trick will be if we hear about additional fiscal stimulus beyond the $1.9 trillion that was recently enacted, is how do you pair you know, the needs for additional investment, particularly around infrastructure, well, which quite frankly, there are needs. How do you balance those needs for new government investment uh, with the funding of and effectively how to pay for uh, that greater government expenditure? I think that conversation will have to occur. And then, um, you know, there'll be some debate there in terms of what is that right balance. But at some point, the more we go into the government spending side, the more we just have to have that conversation with respect to tax receipts to actually offset the expenditures. We have some more questions about inflation, but before we go there, I wanted to just talk about your outlook for the U.S. and Europe. In the 2021 outlook, you wrote that you were expecting to see 5% growth in both the U.S. and Europe. But does the smoother rollout of the vaccine in the U.S. relative to Europe affect that forecast at all? Uh, modestly, Christine, but they're still pointing in the same direction. I mean, the most material change, and I think it's, it's for everyone uh, who's been looking at the markets, has actually been the increased stance and uh, pace of fiscal stimulus. We had assumed that we would see at the end of 2020, but it's been well beyond even our expectations. And so the $1.9 trillion recently enacted in of itself will add you know, several percentage points to those growth numbers. So if we were already talking about strong growth, again, part because we are coming out of a very deep recession Last year, we are projecting even stronger numbers, and uh, and I think the market has started to discount that, meaning expect that. But we still see risk on the upside if we look over the next 12 months, because uh, to your point, vaccine distribution, knock on wood, is continuing to meet or exceed expectations. We've also seen some bifurcation in emerging markets, with emerging markets in Southeast Asia generally recovering more swiftly from the pandemic than those in other parts of the world. How does that affect your outlook for growth in Asian emerging markets versus emerging markets elsewhere? Sure, Jeff. You know, again, our thesis and framework was that a healthy economy begins and ends with health uh, in this environment. And so those economies, those regions of the world that could more quickly close the immunity gap, we're going to see first and foremost, the more rapid growth. And I think we're going to see that. What has not changed is, you know, we are going to effectively see an echo wave in terms of economies taking the lead in terms of growth and, and the pace of recovery. Obviously, it was initially led by China, uh, U.S., you know, quickly coming up the leaderboard, so to speak. And then you're going to see, you know, some emerging markets lag. And it really depends upon that combination of effectiveness in controlling the virus, as well as the efficacy of immunity and vaccine distribution. So in that sense, our outlook of that echo wave or sequence of growth hasn't changed. You mentioned a few of the things that have been potentially affecting inflation. I wanted to ask about these supply chain issues that we're seeing and how do they affect your view of inflation? It seems like there's this semiconductor shortage that's weighing on manufacturing right now. And it seems like there are long waits for everything that you might order, whether sofas or cars or bikes. So how does that factor into your thinking on inflation, Joe? Sure, Christine. Uh, I mean, it, it is a factor. It will push up inflation modestly over the next uh, several months, uh, Christine. But at least by our assumptions, they are still nevertheless temporary. doesn't mean it won't. It's just another reason why we expect what we called at the beginning of the year an inflation scare that's coming. In fact, we will be approaching it very shortly. I think ultimately 
it'll fade for a time in part because of those uh, supply constraints will ease. What is, however, growing in the horizon, particularly when we start to look out into late 2022 and beyond, is the tendency and the propensity, which I think the market is potentially underestimating, the potential if we continue to see fiscal spending that sort of influence that has on expected inflation. In other words, the numbers that you and I expect to see for wages, prices paid, and companies expect as well. It's what economists call inflation psychology. It's what central bankers call stable inflation expectations. They started to lift. And if we continue to see fiscal spending, like is being currently discussed, I think we will see modest, more upward pressure on expected inflation. That is important because that will then likely lead to a little bit more permanent higher inflation, you know, again, not drastically high, but we will certainly breach 2% on a sustained basis if we're right. But that's that's more than a year from now. So right now it is the just the growth recovery, the service sector coming back online and your supply constraints, which will all lead to a boost in inflation, some of which will dissipate. I think the more important and pressing question is when we work through that period, where is trend inflation? Which for 20 years, uh, central banks have struggled to attain 2%. It was our thesis and has generally been so, uh, but we are starting to see a modest change in the risk assessment of our inflation projections. First time I've seen that since I've been actually at Vanguard. And so again, we're not calling for a return to the early 1970s or the late 1960s, but the risks at the minimum are more symmetric and they're starting to become modestly on the upside the further out we look. If I'm a bond investor, should I be worried? Well, I think you have to worry if the market's not discounting that, Jeff, right? I think what's been, uh, I think, important and something we anticipated was that break-even inflation. So the bond market's best estimate of where future inflation will be, that now has finally gotten to a level that we deem is, is reasonable. So the treasury market is effectively assessing a risk of roughly two to two and a half percent inflation, which is above the Fed's long-term two percent target over the next decade. Uh, that's certainly more sensible and realistic to us than where it was just several months ago when it was skeptical we would ever see inflation. And so those expected inflation rates were well below two. And in fact, at one point early in the crisis, we're even below 1%. So I think we're in a more normalized environment. We don't anticipate a material further rise in expected inflation. I think we will see modest higher interest rates, but that will be because of uh, a combination of two things. One is the real or long-run real inflation-adjusted yields should continue to modestly rise if our outlook for growth is is important. As you know, Jeff, real interest rates are negative on any horizon in the bond market. That seems inconsistent when you start to look out at growth a little bit longer term. And then secondly, at some point, the Federal Reserve, if we're right on our growth and inflation projections, will start to finally lift off from the zero bound. We're not there yet. We likely won't be there next year as well. Um, So I think there will be more adjustment in short-term interest rates and intermediate interest rates, but we don't see you know, a, a material doubling that I've heard some perhaps wonder about in terms of interest rates. We will see more normalization, which I, I think ultimately for investors, it's good news. The one, you know, the one unfortunate outcome of the crisis is that, you know, the zero interest rate bound is really right now, if they don't change, is lowering the expected returns on all investments, private or public. And so the sooner we can start to lift out of that environment, the better that is for longer term 
portfolio returns, even if there's a modest period of adjustment when the Federal Reserve tightening cycle is brought into view. The economic effects of the pandemic have been unevenly distributed with some knowledge workers in a better position economically today than they were a year ago. And then people in other occupations have been really hard hit financially. So is there a chance that inflation could also be unevenly distributed, that some people will see higher prices on the stuff that they want to buy, that some of those higher income workers will see inflation and other workers, other people might not? It's certainly possible, Christine. I mean, I think there's many unfortunate, um, you know, aspects of the COVID-19, the global pandemic. Just the trauma economically has really been centered on certain industries and certain, you know, just certain occupations. It's been unfortunate. And, you know, some of those headwinds remain, you know, just for recollection. I mean, particularly the price increases we saw for certain essential commodities, particularly around food, was pretty eye-opening. And again, for those that have lower income, a higher percentage of their budget by definition is spent on food because they don't have the wherewithal to be spending on more discretionary items. So, you know, I think what we will see is twofold. One is if we're right with the economic uh, outlook, we'll see an improvement in the labor market. And the vast majority of that improvement will be from what we call the face-to-face sector of the economy, the service-based economy, hotels, restaurants, et cetera, start to come, uh, resume a little bit more normal activity. That should be supportive for the very workers who have had a lot of suffering. Secondly, uh, the supply constraints on, on certain of those commodities that we saw, particularly in food, hopefully some of those will ease. And so that could be a powerful double level of support Again, may not be a great deal solace for certain households that have had a weather high unemployment, higher food prices during this past uh, year or more, but that should partially offset. And again, I think it stands noting that all this came at a time where there was growing concern and anxiety about the secular rise in income inequality in many economies around the world. This has been a global phenomenon and was already you know, reaching fairly elevated levels and that was before COVID-19 hit. So in that sense, COVID-19 just accelerated some of the disparities that we were seeing socially around the world. We're going to shift to market outlook. And you've alluded to sort of the different inputs into the way you build outlooks. But, you know, I thought maybe we could unpack that a little bit, if that's okay. We'd like to go over how you arrive at the forecast for stocks and bonds that you make what variables factor into the forecast for each. Can can you maybe take a moment to talk about that? Sure, Jeff. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, the key drivers of asset prices to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast really relate to the fundamentals. So for stocks and bonds, it's really uh, two factors. It's It's things such as earnings yield, which is effectively tied to you know, profitability, and hence there's a relationship there with our economic assumptions and in nominal space, the rate of inflation. And then most importantly, it's the level of real interest rates. So that's the discount rate that not only uh, influences the expected short rate uh, for any asset, you know, any asset, whether it's a stock fund or a bond fund or a private equity investment or a portfolio of real estate holdings, all that has what we call an expected risk premium over and above the cash rate, which has effectively no risk in the sense of you can store it and has very low volatility. And so those risk premiums vary through time. And so what we do is we take initial conditions, which are really important to inform 
the level of real interest rates, inflation, and those factors I mentioned that influence those asset prices, Jeff. And then based upon our assumptions of their long-run equilibriums, we also allow for transitions because we are not in equilibrium today on any of those metrics. And that's important. And that's been a center of our framework for well over a decade. It's based upon deep academic research, much of which we've published and revealed to the broader community. And there is a level of predictability. We cannot time markets in any month, week, or year. um, And we're skeptical of anyone who claims otherwise. But there is a modest predictability. In other words, relative to the level of interest rates, relative to valuations such as earnings yields or the inverse is price to earnings ratios, the shape of the yield curve, relative to those factors today, you can get some confidence in how various asset classes will perform on a five or 10 year basis. So very little predictability in the near term. There is certainly some predictability, particularly in our framework on a five or 10 year basis. It's far from perfect. There's a great deal of you know, mismeasurement and error, because we're talking about the future here, which is why we do two things. One is we acknowledge that the expected returns will and should vary through time. Not everyone does that. And I think on a 5, 10, or 15-year horizon, uh, one's expected return should vary through time because the macro fundamentals do. Secondly, we always show our outlooks in a range of outcomes, and we are revealing the amount of precision or Conversely, the lack of precision some of our estimates have, and I think that's the right way to do it. So we always present our outlook and the distribution of outcomes, but I know there's many readers will care about the median, you know, the mean, what the average return is, and we certainly will disclose that. But I think it's just as important is to say where the risks are tilted relative to the recent past as well as going forward, because that's critically important to devise a strategic asset allocation. Delving into that outlook for equities, you expect that non-U.S. stocks will perform better than U.S. over the next decade. Can you walk us through how you arrive at that? Sure, Christine. Again, I think the valuation is the most critical driver. You know, the relative earnings to prices or conversely prices to earnings in the U.S. versus other uh, markets. Now, there's some reasons why the U.S. has a higher multiple P-E ratio today. Part of that is just a different industry profile. In other words, the U.S. tends to have a higher technology leaning, and we all know what technology stocks have done. But it's, you know, our assessment, there's a a number of contributors to why more likely than not, non-U.S. equities will modestly outperform the U.S. going forward. But it's mostly not currency. It's not the fact that this is a so-called macro call that the U.S. dollar will weaken significantly. It actually doesn't even require it significantly. It's, it's much more where the valuations are. And then broadly speaking, if the IMF and broad economic projections are even close to being right, I mean, if they're even close, if they're in the right direction, that should also be supportive of parts of really any market outside the U.S., which has underperformed the S&P 500 over the past three, five, and 10 years. In your team's capital markets outlook, you describe your outlook for global equities as guarded, and and it sounds like high valuations are the main reason for that. Is that right? It is. um, And again, I think it's we're, we're not bearish. We're just trying to set relative to the recent past, which has been phenomenal, and particularly the past year, Jeff. I think also some of the frothiness we are clearly seeing in parts of the U.S. market, particularly in the growth space, they're not widely held. And so that's where I think you know, not all assets have performed in the same magnitude at all. I mean, large 
sectors of the value space, uh, large sectors of the global economy have not seen their stock prices rise to nearly the same pace and extent. Markets outside the U.S. have not nearly performed as strongly as the U.S. And so now, again, it's not just magical mean reversion. This will just magically reverse. There has to be, you know, a relation relative to fundamentals. And it's that assessment that says, okay, past is not prologue. What has happened in the past 10 years may not repeat. And so we do see some reversal outside of growth and then outside of the U.S., which would be beneficial for global investment portfolios. So I think the big takeaway, the headline takeaway would be we could still live in an environment where there's headlines of potential bubble concern or underperformance for a time from the growth universe. And that may not mean at all that one's broadly based portfolio is experiencing negative returns because the leadership could rotate. And I think that's more likely today than it has been for some time. Our team has recently done some research where we have examined the best diversifier for equity risk. Not surprisingly, treasuries fared really well, and so did cash. The question is, do you think bonds will continue to diversify equities as well as they have done over the past couple of decades, especially given that yields are still really low today? Sure, Christine. And uh, yeah, I've read that research, and Morningstar makes some very good points in the sense of, at the end of the day, we still expect fixed income to diversify for no other reason than we just generally don't see the same volatility from high-quality fixed income as we do on equities. Um, you know, obviously lower return, but with that lower volatility. You know, I, I think uh, we will still anticipate, um, you know, the correlations. Ultimately, this gets to the correlation between stock price movements and bond price movements, which had been, you know, wonderfully negative for, for two or three years. It's one of the reasons for the secular decline in rates, and, and the biggest reason for that has been the lack of really material inflation risk which is why I think there's, you know, at least concern from investors today. So I'd say where we come at the end of the day, correlations of the next decade will be modestly higher than they were for the past decade, but that's not bearish for bonds. I think that's what's being lost in some conversations I see. You can have zero or even modestly positive correlation, which actually has been the historical norm, and fixed income will still diversify. Um, the only time where that could really change for a brief period would be if we had a significant multi-year higher than expected inflation run-up, uh, much like we saw in the early 1970s, where at that point, bond prices fell and stock prices fell at the same time. So correlations went out meaningfully. That ultimately dissipated, but that was a painful period, which is why I think it's always uh, front and center of certain investors' minds. But unless we see that multi-period, multi-percentage point higher than expected trend inflation outcome, we're going to be talking about fixed income as a diversifier for equities, and so I don't see that changing. Assuming you have a portfolio of cash, stock, and bonds, what, if any additional assets, would you add to that portfolio to improve its diversification potential and potentially its return potential over the next, say, two or three decades? Do cash, stock, and bonds take you as far as you need to go You know, in the future as they have in the past? Well, thanks, Jeff. That's a that's a really good question. It's a tough question, but it's an important one. I, I'm gonna I'm reluctant what I'm gonna say here, but I'm gonna use the economist uh, phrase. It depends, but it truly does. I mean, I think it's what's one's tolerance and how I would think about this with a client or you know with a colleague is first of all, what's one's aggregate goal in the portfolio? What's the sort of return target or spending need and horizon over which they are contemplating? 
because it's a very long horizon, I think that's the first order of business. Equity-like risk for the higher the return spending goal or wealth accumulation need and lower on the upside end of the spectrum. I, I think with that, though, you, you can then introduce other conversations uh, when that conversation has ended, and that is uh, what's one's conviction around being able to identify skill in the active management universe, so-called alpha. Uh, skill does exist. Some managers charge too much for it, but nevertheless, skill does exist. And you know, if you're willing to take on some, some tracking error risk, some active risk, that could clearly play a role in portfolios, and it's something that way in my own you know, portfolio, because I have conviction that the managers will add, if it's an equity fund, potentially 50 to 100 basis points and an additional return over time. But I have to be patient with that underperformance. Some investors are not. And then finally, with that other, we would still phrase as active risk over and above the liquid, broad capital market. So in the same way, I could think about modestly adding weights to active managers in the equity and fixed income loan only space. I think the same sort of calculus applies when individuals talk about private assets. I, I think this notion of, of characterizing certain alternatives such as private equity as a quote unquote asset class actually is kind of dated. I think it's much more because one cannot buy the private equity market as an index, one has to uh, you know, harness the ability of one or a small handful of managers. Not to say don't do it. I think that's the same calculus in terms of one's expectations for alpha, or I call it excess return, including liquidity premiums, over and above what the broad markets may be expected to deliver. So I think, again, it comes back to that ability to do one's due diligence. It's, it's what Morningstar puts a lot of diligence in and trying to identify and separate skill from luck. And I think those should be on the table regardless of what the equity market or, you know, what the outlook is from Vanguard or other firms. Um, I think that's a fair conversation to have and something that can certainly add some value over time in an after-cost basis. But one has to be diligent and think through that problem. We've been focused on your market and economic outlook, but we wanted to broaden the scope a bit here to discuss your team's work on what you call megatrends. And first, I'm hoping you can tell us what is a megatrend and also what are some of the megatrends that you've identified? Thanks, Christine. I mean, a megatrend in my mind is something that is uh, it, it's, it's a slow-moving yet incredibly powerful force that has the potential to significantly impact uh, some combination of the level of growth we see globally, uh, the level of inflation, or the distribution of that growth, either across countries or within society. Examples of megatrends, which have been with humanity uh, since our existence, have been things such as the pace of technological change. You know, I think the nature and pace of globalization, right, uh, which opens up new markets. There's winners and losers at times in globalization. Those are things that are characteristic or representative of megatrends. They may always exist, but the pace of change or the nature of the change in fields such as either demographics, technology, globalization, as well as policy, uh, you could think of, say, the role of government could be an emerging megatrend in society. All of those, the pace and the nature of those uh, phenomena change, which can lead to long-lasting imprints on global economies and hence the financial market. So even having some understanding of how those megatrends, how their machines work, I think in itself is important because that can at least give some insight as to how some of those trends, as they unfold, 
may impact ultimately the things we care about in the capital markets, which are the fundamentals I talked about a little bit a while ago. You know, the rate of inflation, the rate of growth, the rate of interest rates, those are important and megatrends at times have significantly altered the trajectory of those macro phenomena. One of the megatrends that your team has researched extensively is the changing nature of work, and you've provided some updates in the wake of COVID. Do you expect that COVID will hasten the trend toward remote work? And if so, what do you think are the broader macroeconomic implications of that? Thanks, Jeff. I mean, I think it will, and or it has. I mean, the future has been accelerated along a number of fronts. Um, but when we did our analysis on the future work with respect to remote work, and we were able to look at all industries and the characteristics of all tasks within each job that makes up a job. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of a task that ultimately translates into a job. And we looked at the effective, uh, the remote effectiveness, if you will, uh, for each one of those tasks, some of which you can do very effectively remotely as you can in person, others very challenged to do so. And so when you roll that up across every industry and then you roll that up to the economy, it says, uh, you know, some industries are going back to where they were, but it's not the vast majority of them, you know, but you could think of things in the service industry, I don't know, a bartender or other things where it's very likely to resume parts of the construction uh, industry, you know, back to normal, so to speak, in air quotes, because of its physical intensity. Um, However, others were always almost as effective in remote ability as they were, say, in an office, uh, some things particularly in the technology space. But what I was surprised to see is that the vast majority of industries, they are highly effective in a remote setting, but not exactly as effective as, quote unquote, the old way of doing things, which tells me the future is one of hybrid, which I know is talked about a lot. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think Uh, What we will see in certain sectors is a balance, a little bit more towards that move towards flexibility, potentially not in the office every day. However, at the same time, what our our research clearly finds is that for certain human skills, human interaction is important at times, everything from managing uh, employees to developing relationships to building teams. And so at the end of the day, humans are our social uh, beings. And so I think we will see When we talk about hybrid, I still think it won't be as cataclysmic for the commercial real estate market. As some fear, there will be an adjustment. Uh, There will be, uh, in our estimate, overcapacity, but it will not be broad-based, and every industry will adopt it, and every firm, I think, will adopt it in slightly different ways. Um, And so, again, history is not fully written on this, but I don't think the COVID environment as we are living right now, will completely persist. There will be some return to human-to-human interaction in our professional lives, more so than there is now. It just very likely will not fully retrace to the pre-COVID world. Speaking of humanness, your future of work paper in 2018 didn't settle for the idea that automation is coming for all of us and coming for all of our jobs. Instead, it argued that automation and technology are actually freeing us up from some repetitive tasks, and that gives us time to focus on tasks that are uniquely human, as you call it. So what's an example of a uniquely human task? Well, thanks, Christine. I mean, there's actually a whole range of them. Uh, I think really things that relate to, in the psychology literature, one of two things, social skills as well as emotional intelligence. Um, So, you know, doing calculations, for example, is effectively a repetitive task, uh, but 
things such as thinking creatively, you know, building and leading teams, which many managers do on a daily basis, and strategically thinking about certain issues. And I could go on and on and on. Obviously, you know, caring for others, which is a critical component in the healthcare sector and in education as well. All of those have high uniquely human scores where computer technology is a complement, not a substitute for. So, you know, I think going forward, when we did the analysis, that the, really that the trick is quantifying each of those, the pull and pull, the push of computer automation and the pull of its need to amplify some of our value as workers. And when you do that calculus, we still come back to the fact that two things. One is roughly 20% of the industries will continue to see jobs go away and technology replace them, as has been the course through human history. However, uh, the greater change is for effectively all the industries, and particularly the other 80%, the composition of tasks is changing at an accelerated pace, which led us to the paradox, which I think you know, was obviously disrupted in COVID-19, but will reemerge in the next three years. And that is a great deal of change in how we approach our jobs, ultimately a greater value for the human contribution of those jobs. It'll rely even more heavily on computers as an asset, not as a substitute. And will still, in some industries, still lead to job shortages, which will be the irony. We will have, you know, more computer ability. We will have more automation in some sectors, and yet we will still be stuck eventually with time, tight labor markets, and job shortages in certain educational and, you know, regional labor markets. So, again, I'm not dismissive of, you know, in certain industries, obviously, the need to upskill is significant, and technology is a powerful force. But for most industries, or at least the majority of them, the more that one can embrace computer as an asset, not as a competitor, the more one's own career value is higher, the more uh, one is able to contribute, and obviously the higher wage and, and career prospects one will have. Well, Joe, this has been a fascinating discussion. We so appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Christine. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. 
All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.